Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is great to see each of you today. You have already done something this morning that a lot of people are not willing to do on Sunday morning. That is, you have gathered for worship. You've gathered in a place where you can study from the Bible. I heard one man say that he was a bedside believer. He said he liked to worship at the chapel of the tube. What that meant was he stayed in bed on Sunday morning and around 10 or 10.30 he'd wake up and turn his television on in his bedroom and he'd watch a little bit of religious programming. Bedside believer. You know, for some people, that's more than just a joke. Some folks never get near a church assembly. So thank you for being here this morning. And I trust that you will be benefited by the time that we spend together today, this morning and this evening. You can already see the lessons that we're presenting today. We're talking this morning about a lesson called The Gathering. And then in the main worship section at, uh, what, 1020? Is that what time we gather? We gather again uh, at 1020. We'll be talking about great churches do great things. And then I don't want you to miss tonight. Tonight we'll we'll be talking about a man who began to build and we'll see something that happened to that man and then we'll investigate some of our own circumstances in life. But there are some folks that stay away from religious assemblies. Uh, You'll see people who'll say things like, well, uh, I I get closer to God by going out and sitting on the riverbank and fishing or just taking a walk in the woods or just enjoying the beauty of nature. That draws me close to God. Well, I think that when you see the beauties of nature, you can see evidence of of God. You see design. You see evidence even of God's power. But you don't learn about God's will by sitting on a riverbank fishing on Sunday morning. Sadly, there are some Christians who cannot be a part of a worship assembly. Some have no choice. They may be trapped in a hospital bed or a nursing home. And I believe that God is sufficient to meet their needs. In those cases, it's possible for them to live a Christian life, but that is certainly not the norm to stay away from assemblies. But some people, as I said, have no choice but to be away from the assembly. I want to point this out. If you are a Christian this morning, when you became a Christian, God called you into a fellowship. And I'm looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, where the text simply says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word fellowship has to do with sharing. It has to do with relationship. By the way, the word fellowship doesn't have to do with a chili supper or coffee and donuts. I heard one man say that when I hear that word fellowship, I can just smell the coffee and donuts. That's not the meaning of fellowship in the Bible. Fellowship involves a relationship, a joint participation, a sharing in some sense. And so if you are a Christian, when you became a Christian, you were called into this fellowship with God's Son. And so I'm going to point out that we have in Christ a vertical relationship. There's a relationship between me and heaven. There's a relationship between you and heaven. Relationship with God. But there is a second relationship that is also called fellowship. And that's this, found in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. 
where John said, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And here in the immediate context, I think this is talking about being in fellowship with the apostles, those that were sent by Christ. But as you and I are in fellowship with the apostles, the apostle says we have fellowship with one another. And so there is a second kind of relationship, a two-way fellowship. There is a vertical relationship with God, but there's also a horizontal relationship with other Christians. And a part of that, a prime aspect of our fellowship with other Christians has to do with our gathering together in the local assembly. I'm looking at Acts chapter 20 and verses 7 and 8. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Now, here's a gathering of disciples. The word disciples in this text simply means Christians. It's not talking about the 12 apostles in this case, but it's just talking about Christians. And notice what they do. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where many were gathered together. I want you to notice two lines from this text. Notice it says the disciples came together. And then at the end it says they were gathered together. What I want to talk to you this morning about is the concept of the gathering. This was really the norm for disciples uh, in the early church. And God has a plan for our gathering together. And I want you to think about how the world views Christians. The world looks at Christians and says, okay, uh, there are lots of different kinds of Christians out there. There are some Christians who are members of a church and they gather together with other Christians. But there are a lot of Christians and they're, they're going to heaven too, but they don't gather with the church. They're not part of a church. You see, the world classifies Christians as church members and non-church members. But I would ask you, do you ever find anything like that in the Bible? I don't think you'll find that in God's Word. Modern religion does that. It says, oh yes, we classify Christians as church members and non-church members. But in the Bible, from the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, that's when the church began, the Bible sees every Christian as part of the church and as gathering together with other disciples in a local assembly. Now, I mentioned that bedside believer a little while ago the fellow who stays away from the assembly. And he may think he's right with God. He may think he has salvation. But the idea of having salvation in isolation, apart from an assembly, apart from gathering for worship, that idea is really foreign to the New Testament. Some people sort of look at Christianity, well, I'll just be God's hermit. I won't gather with other Christians. I'll just be off by myself and do my own thing, whether I watch a religious program on TV or whatever I may do. But the Bible doesn't know anything about God's hermit. The Bible talks about a gathering of people together to serve God together, to worship God together. And what, you, what you'll find when you read your New Testament in the book of Acts, that's where the church was established, Acts chapter 2, 
From that point onward, whenever Christians were in range of one another, they gathered together as a local assembly of believers. In fact, whenever the Apostle Paul came into a town where there was no congregation, the Apostle Paul would teach the gospel to a few people. And what would happen? Those few people who would obey the Lord, they would gather together. They would comprise a local assembly of God's people. As an example, when you study your Bible in Acts chapter 16, you see Paul coming to the city of Philippi, and he encounters some women who were gathered on the Sabbath day by a river for prayer. And Paul taught them the gospel. Lydia and her household, they became Christians. As you continue on in that text, you see Paul and Silas be arrested. You see them be arrested, and they wind up teaching the jailer and his household. Well, here you've got a nucleus of a local assembly of believers. That's what happened. Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household, and maybe there were others who were converted that are not told uh, that are not told to us in the story there. But the thing I want you to see is that whenever Paul came into a city and taught the gospel and people became Christians, that was the beginning of a local assembly of saints in that community. And so that really was the norm for God's people. You see, God has a plan for our gathering, and God's standard is that we gather and that we gather together for worship. Looking at Acts chapter 20 one more time, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it said, Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday. On the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread, and Paul preached to them and continued his speech until midnight, and so on. That's the practice of the early church. This gathering of a local assembly of believers was vital to the spiritual life of the early Christians. You know, a lot of times, folks even who are church members, they sometimes think, well, yeah, I'm a church member, but you know, that's not really that important in my relationship with God. Early Christians didn't see it that way. They saw the local church as a vital part of their being disciples of Jesus, and they never looked at the local church as unnecessary. You've got all kinds of ideas out there in the world about the local church and about gathering together. But when you go to the Bible... The norm for Christians was to gather on the first day of the week. They gathered for purposes, okay? They had a reason why they gathered. And so let's talk about that. God has purposes for our gathering. And our first purpose is explained in the text that we've just seen in Acts chapter 20 and in verse number 7. They gathered for the worship and glorification of God. Assembly worship is an integral part of Christianity. Once again, when you look at Acts 20 and verse 7, the disciples came together on the first day of the week to break bread. Now, the breaking of bread in this context is not about eating a, fellow, a fellowship meal in the sense of having a chili supper or having hamburgers or a spaghetti dinner or something like that. The idea of breaking of bread in the New Testament, that was the common way of referring to the Lord's Supper. Remember, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, this do in remembrance of me. This bread he spoke of as representative of his body. And so that's what was happening here. The breaking of bread in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 is talking about an act of worship. It's remembering the Lord's death. 
the breaking of bread, the drinking of the fruit of the vine, remembering his body, remembering his blood. But notice also that along with that, Acts 20 and verse 7 said, Paul preached to them. So you've got the preaching, which again was part of the worship of the church there at, uh, at Troas. These acts of worship, the Lord's Supper and the preaching, along with the singing, the praying, and the giving, these are all part of our gathering on the first day of the week. Our assembly is a gathering for worship, okay? Gathering for worship. Additionally, the disciples sometimes gathered even on other days for worship. When you look in Acts chapter 2, toward the end of that chapter, after you had some 3,000 who were converted on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, toward the end of the chapter, in verse 42, it said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That is, they were gathering together for teaching the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's their giving, sharing what they had. And in the breaking of bread, another reference to the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. But when you look on down the page in verse number 46, it says they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. This second breaking of bread mentioned in this text, this is the common meal where they just gathered not only to worship, but they gathered from house to house, not as part of the assembly, but they gathered for common meals to share their, their lives together with one another. And they praised God and had favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So what I'm wanting you to see from this is that the disciples gathered even on other days besides the Lord's Day. And then think about the singing. In the course of our gathering this morning, we're going to sing some songs. We, we did that last night. We did that night before last. Over in the book of Colossians chapter 3 and in verse number 16, the apostle wrote this about singing. Colossians 3, 16. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You see singing as part of worship. Everybody understands that. Notice what it said, though. It said, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There, when it comes to singing, there again is a two-way thing. We sing praises to God. There's that vertical relationship again. But remember, as we began the lesson, we talked about the horizontal relationship, the one another thing. And that's found in this text also, when it said in verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when the early Christians gathered for worship, they sang praises, they praised God, but they also, in their songs, taught and encouraged, admonished one another in these songs. And that's the same thing that we will do today. Singing is part of worship, and it's done on a one another basis. Notice that language in Colossians 3.16. It used the language one another. And how can you do the one another thing without gathering together? If, I'm, if I stay home and say, well, I'm just going to worship God on my own, there is no one another thing there. I need to be with other saints in order to do that. I need to be at the gathering. There's an interesting passage over in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 and in verse number 12, a passage that is rarely mentioned, but it's a passage that is actually referring to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, 
where, well, in verse 11, it says, He who sanctifies, and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That, when he talks about him calling them brethren, that's talking about you and me. It's talking about Christians. The Lord calls us brothers, brethren. But here the text says in verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. I will declare your name to my brethren. And in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. This is interesting because it, it portrays Jesus in this verse in a very unusual way. It portrays him as a partaker in the assembly. And it says in the latter part, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. But notice again, there, there's the idea of praise to God. But at the same time, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. And so that vertical and horizontal thing, again, is found in that text. Gathering, gathering together for worship gives us encouragement. We, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, what, what are we doing? We're sharing in our mutual love for Jesus. It says we love Jesus, but it says we love Jesus. There's a sharing, there's a certain fellowship, a connection that we make with one another. You believe in Jesus. You believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. You believe his body suffered on the cross. You believe he shed his blood for our sins. That's what I believe too. And we share together in that when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we sing, we unite our hearts in songs and we express the deepest feelings of our heart. Oh, how I love Jesus. Songs like that. But when we sing those songs, that says, you love Jesus, I love Jesus. We're here to encourage one another. We've spent the whole week out there in the world, on, on our jobs or at school or wherever we may have been, in, in a world that is often hostile to our faith. But when we come together in worship, we're encouraging one another. You see, so it's not just that we worship God, but there's that one another relationship. Also, we send our prayers, our petitions up to God when we gather together. And God receives glory and honor when a united people come together to praise him. Remember, our series this week is about glory to God. And I don't have it on this slide at this point, but it's about giving God glory. That's what we do when we gather together. We gather for worship and glorification of God. That's what the early saints did, and we are like the early saints, okay? What we're doing is not something we've dreamed up on our own. We're looking at the pattern found in the New Testament, and we are imitating this pattern. We want to be what these early Christians were. You see, we believe what they believed. Why? Because we've heard what they heard. So we've heard the same gospel, believed the same gospel, we've obeyed the same gospel. And you know what? We intend on going to the same place where these early Christians were going. They were heavenward in their view of life. They knew this world was not their home and they were going, they were truly going to a better place. You know, when folks die today, almost everyone, almost at every circumstance, someone will say, well, he's in a better place now. Listen, there are some people who do really do go to a better place. 
And those early saints, when they passed from this life, they went to a better place, and that's where we're going to. So we're on our way there, and we're going to try to encourage one another on the way. Okay, second point. God has purposes for our gathering, worship and glorification of His name. But secondly, the functioning of the gifts. You have gifts from God. And did you realize that most of the gifts that were possessed by the early Christians were not miraculous in nature. Oh, I know over in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, the gifts there, those that are listed there were, I think, nine gifts listed there. The gift of prophecy, the speaking in tongues, the gift of healing, whatever they may have been. Those were miraculous. But in Romans chapter 12, the passage we're going to look at right now, Romans chapter 12, you've got several gifts that are listed there, but only one that is listed there is miraculous in nature. In Romans chapter 12 and starting at verse number 4, it says, As we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same... You're looking at that with me? All members do not have the same function. We're talking now about the functioning of the gifts because he's going to go on and talk about the gifts in the upcoming verses. He says, All members do not have the same function. So we, being many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. Look at that language. Members of one another. That is, I belong to you, you belong to me. We are members of one another. Having then gifts. Okay, now he's introducing the gifts here. Okay, he's, he's talked about function. We're members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy... Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. There, the gift of prophecy was a miraculous gift. It was the ability to speak the will of God, whether past, present, or future. That's a miraculous gift. But then he just says in verse 7, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. The word ministering just means to serve. And so maybe we have a special area of service. Maybe there's something you can do that I can't. If you're a song leader, you have a skill, a gift that I do not have. Ministry, let us use it in ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There you've got about seven gifts that are listed there, but only one of those seven is miraculous in nature. The others that are listed are skills or natural abilities that God has given to us. And I will tell you, my friend, you have gifts from God. You have some skill, some quality, some ability that you can use in the functioning of the church. Remember what we read in verse number four. Verse 4 said, as we have many members in the one body, all the members do not have the same function. He's talking about our working together, our functioning. And, and that's a part of the reason why we gather together. We're talking about God's purposes for our gathering. And one of those purposes is the functioning of the gifts. Now I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Because these gifts are not given for our own personal comfort or convenience or something like that. The gifts are given for the benefit of all. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 10 and 11, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. There's that one another thing again in the scripture. 
That just keeps popping up all over the New Testament. But whatever gift you have, maybe your gift is the one of encouragement. Maybe you're that person who has an ability to speak to those who are discouraged, those who have been abused by this world. Maybe your gift is to give them a word of comfort, to call them alongside and and say, brother, we can make it. I'm praying for you. I want to help you. Maybe that's a gift that you have. You ought to minister that to someone else. That's the point he's making. So as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be what? If you've got your Bible open to 1 Peter 4.11, in all things that God may be glorified. When you use whatever gifts God has given you, those things are to the glory of God, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The gifts are not given to make you feel good, but rather they are given for the common good of the body of believers. Have you ever considered... If you're a member of the Laurel Heights Church, have you ever considered that this congregation needs you? There is a need that this congregation has that you can fulfill. Someone says, oh, I I don't really think that. I'm not of any value to anyone or anything. You know, I'm old and it's hard for me to get out. And, uh, you know, what good am I? What good am I to the group of believers? Listen. We have people in this audience this morning who are aging, just a little bit older than I am. And it was hard for you to get out. And already this morning, by your very presence, you have encouraged others. And we're motivated to do better because you've made a much harder effort than the rest of us to get out to worship. You are valuable to the body of believers. Over in the book of 1 Corinthians again, In chapter 12, the the apostle just, he just stamps out this idea that you are of no value. Don't ever say that you're not important to the body of believers. He says in verse number 14, I'll just begin there in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12, verse 14. He says, in fact, the body is not one member, but many. The body of believers is not one, but it's the several of us together. He says in verse 14, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, well, therefore I'm not of the body. Is it not of the body? And so he personifies the various members of your physical body. And he says, okay, you got a foot here that says, what good am I? I'm not a hand. I wish I was a hand, but because I'm not a hand, I'm not important. I'm not, no, you know, what? What do I have to contribute? But in your physical body, your foot, your foot contributes a lot, even though it's not a hand. Look at the rest of it as, as it continues on. Verse 16, if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? No, it's still of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole, if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Just think about that. If every member of your body was an ear, you'd have something that couldn't function. If the whole, if the whole body was comprised just of eyes, you'd have a body that couldn't function. 
And, and Paul is, it's almost comical to really think about what Paul is saying here. And it's absurd to think that one part of your body, because it's not another part of the body, it's, it's then not part of your body. It's absurd. And, and what Paul is saying, in the body of Christ, everyone, everyone has a part. Everyone belongs. Everyone has something that they do in the body of believers. And so God has given something to you. You have gifts. And I will say, my brethren, that worship is not a spectator sport. We don't gather to watch others worship. We participate. It's God's desire and God's design that we come together and we use these gifts for His glory and use these gifts to encourage and help one another. And so there, we've got two points so far as to God's purposes for our gathering, worship and glorification of God, the functioning of gifts, and as we talked about last night, the edification of one another. And we read part of this text last night, remember from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at about verse 11, when it spoke of how Jesus ascended into heaven. And at that time, it says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. All of those were teaching ministries. Some of those, like the apostles and prophets, someone says, do you have apostles and prophets in the church today? We certainly do. It's the same apostles and prophets that existed in the early church, and we have the record of their teaching. Paul, Luke, James, Peter, we have the record of the apostles and prophets. But then we have these ongoing teaching ministries, teachers, evangelists, pastors, the pastors in the Bible is talking about the elders, the overseers, the shepherds in the local church. But why did he give these? Look at it in verse 12. These, these teaching works were given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What does that word edifying mean? It means to what? Come on, give me some help. Build up. Yes. We are meeting today in an edifice. A building is an edifice. And someone told me last night, and I, this is risky, I'm going to try to pronounce it, that in Spanish, the word for building is edificio, es correcto, okay? Yes, the idea, building, edificio, it's an edifice, building up. And, and we're not talking here about brick and mortar. When it talks about building up of the body of Christ, it's talking about a spiritual body. And all of us together are living stones in that body of believer, uh, believers. It's, we're living stones in the temple of God. Uh, but it goes on to say that these things are given so that we can all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. God wants us to mature in Christ. Do you remember the definition we gave last night of edification? Edification is the application of Bible truth to my life and circumstances so that I'm more like Christ. That's our definition. God wants us to grow up to be like his son. Verse number 16 speaks of Christ from whom the whole body, watch this now, this is the part that's going to incorporate you when we talk about edification of one another. 
from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Again, someone may say, well, I don't supply anything. Oh, yes, you do. This verse says every joint, every part supplies something by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth for the body for the edifying of itself in love. The idea then of mutual edification is what you've got in this verse. It is about building us up to be like our Lord Jesus. And so edification is going to involve learning the gospel, applying the gospel, living the gospel, and it also involves reaching out to other people with the gospel to bring them into the, into the body of believers. This text that we just read, is another of those one another passages. How many one another passages are there in the New Testament? Have you ever ever thought about that? I think with every point this morning, we've seen something about the one another relationship. Am I doing okay on time? I'm supposed to quit at 10 after? Oh my. We're going to have to put it in high gear now, okay? The, the phrase one another or each other all these passages are about a relationship that we have, that we share in with one another. And language like that is found more than a hundred times in the New Testament. There's a passage in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, and I'll, I'll wrap up this point with this verse. Galatians 5.13, it says, You, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We had a lady two weeks ago who was baptized after services on a Sunday night. On Wednesday night, she showed up at services and the person who baptized her brought her up and she sat on the front row. And you know what she wore to worship? She had on an apron. An apron. And you know why? Because she's a cook in a nursing home. And she came directly from her job just to make it in time for our Wednesday night Bible class. So she still had her apron on. I hope today you're wearing an apron. This lady literally had an apron on. Everybody comes to worship either with a bib or an apron. The apron says, I've come to serve. The bib says, I've come to be served. Let's gather together to serve one another, edification of one another. And then there's the idea of accountability to each other. We watch out for one another. You have elders here at Laurel Heights over in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. The idea of accountability is found in that text where it says to obey those who, who rule over you. Be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief because that would be unprofitable for you. You know, we are Americans and I'm assuming that most of the people in this assembly this morning are U.S. citizens. You know what we love? We love our individuality. We love our freedom. And not only are we Americans, but an awful lot of the folks here this morning are Texans. And that takes us to the next notch when it comes to individuality and freedom. We love our independence. And I think as part of that, we sometimes hate the idea of accountability. I don't want to be accountable to anyone. I want to come and go as I please, and I don't want to be answerable to anybody. But this is from God. 
The local assembly is a place where we gather together and we encourage one another, but we also hold one another accountable for the way we're living our lives. Some Christians, like that bedside believer that we mentioned earlier, they want to be answerable only to themselves. And when that's the case, it is very easy to rationalize sin and to rationalize all manner of ungodly conduct. But regular contact with other Christians can keep us spiritually alert. It can make us wise in our choices. Accountability to one another is an essential part of Christianity. We need to be answerable to one another. Oh, there's so much more that we could say, and I'll simply close with this point. There is coming an ultimate gathering. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, it speaks of our gathering together on the last day. Our gathering unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that. But along the way, we've got this gathering to deal with. And it's a blessing. It's intended by God to help us and encourage us. Completely out of time this morning. We've got another lesson coming in just a little while. May God bless us all. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.